So chapter 29, verse 1 to 19. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and the priests, prophets and all the people who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and the Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah from Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons, and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I do not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise. And bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me. With all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortune and gather you from all the nations and all the places. Where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place where, from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all people who dwell in the city, your kinsmen, who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence. And I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine and pestilence. And will make them a horror to all kingdoms of the earth. To be a curse, a terror, a hissing and a reproach among all nations. Where I have driven them. Because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord. That I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But you would not listen, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, morning, church. How's this winter weather descended on us, eh? There you go. All right, so we're carrying on in this sermon series called Cherry Picked. 
Bible verses. And you know, it reminded me of something. I, I wonder if you've ever received in your lifetime what's called a backhanded compliment from either a friend or a coworker or a family member. Um, do you know what I mean by that? It's, it's basically a situation when a friend or, or, like I said, coworker, whoever, they intend to actually encourage you, say something nice, but in the process, they actually insult you. <laughs> Phrases like this, I didn't ever expect you to get the job. Congratulations. <laughs> wow. I didn't recognize you. You look beautiful. <laughs> I'd love it. Man, I'd love it if responsibilities like you. Oh, I wish clutter in my house didn't bother me. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are awake. Now, typically, um, when people give these comments, they're not trying to offend us or insult us. Their intention is to encourage us. And in the same way, within Christian circles, wider evangelicalism, what people do is they will try to grab a verse from the Bible and they'll message you or email you or say it to you verbally or, or whatever it might be, and their intention is to encourage you. One verse that I hear often comes from the book of Jeremiah, and Josh just read that for us, particularly the 11th verse of the 29th chapter. How many of you have heard this before? Jeremiah 29, 11, have a show of hands. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, right? To give you a hope and a future. Now, for some reason, in numerous Christian circles, Jeremiah 29, 11, that passage has found its way on t-shirts, uh, on coffee mugs, um, you might hear it recited in Parliament by some politicians. Some people even have it as their Facebook wall, as sort of like their life go-to verse. And many understand this verse to be about God's earthly favor on their individual life. And so what they'll do is they'll use this text as a cherry-picked text or as a proof text to claim this idea of emotional, physical, uh, economic prosperity in their life. You'll hear something like this. If you just have confidence and believe God's plan for your life, just believe it with all your heart, God will bless you. After all, doesn't he say? Welfare, prosper, hope, future, those are good things, and that's what God wants to give you. You just need to believe that those things will come to pass. Unfortunately, that's not the prophet Jeremiah talking. That's more Oprah Winfrey speaking at that point. But here's the deal. What do we then do, though, with Jeremiah 29, 11? I mean, it is God's word. I mean, you guys chant that little thanks be to God thing. So if this is the word of the Lord and we believe it and and we don't want to just, I mean, we don't want to dismiss it simply because other people have misused it, right? So then what do we do with Jeremiah 29 11? What are the promises of Jeremiah 29 and 11? And specifically, to whom are the promises given to Jeremiah 29 11? That's what I want us to explore this morning. First, how should we read this passage? How should we read Jeremiah 29 11? Because 
it needs to be read in the backdrop of the whole book of Jeremiah. We need to see it really, too, in the storyline of Israel's history. So that's the first. How should we read this verse? Second, can we apply it to our lives? Fair question, right? Well, how should we read it? And can we, or should we, try to apply it? And if so, how? So, number one, how should we read this verse? Number two, how should we apply it? Easy enough, right? That's where we're headed. I hope the Lord uses this sermon for His glory and a better understanding of who He is in, in your thinking and in your processing and in your life, okay? So let's pray, though, before we unpack those two points. Father, we thank you for this moment in the service. We have sung your word, prayed your word, read your word, and now we ask that you would illuminate your word as it is preached. Lord, only you know perfectly what each individual sitting here right now needs to hear this morning. So please speak and light up your people with an awareness of your holiness and majesty. May we be different because of what we heard this moment. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I think it would be appropriate before we, again, if we're trying to understand what Jeremiah 29 11 is, uh, we need to understand something called context. You know, in real estate, right? For those of you that have purchased a house or you have friends that have, what do they say? What are the three most important factors in real estate? Location, 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 right? And in a similar vein, when we w go to the Bible and we want to know what a particular verse is saying, we have to, similar, not, well, location be helpful, but is context, context, context. Because when texts are isolated, they can be made to say really anything. I mean, you, honestly, you can make the Bible say whatever you want if you just rip it out, right? If you just cherry pick it. But when we read it in its context, their intended meaning becomes clear. So we, what we need to do, and, and as you read the Bible, and, and Sky just announced this, as our Bible reading plan has been rolled out now, you need to ask yourself the who, the what, the why, the where, the how, the all those things. So, and it, so when we look at Jeremiah 29, what, what do we need to ask? Okay, first, so who is Jeremiah speaking to? Who is he talking to? And where are these Jews, I just gave you the answer, but where are these Jews geographically? Like, what's going on? And how long will they be exiled in this place called Babylon? Why are they there? How long will they be there? And then what are the stipulations of this promise of Jeremiah 29, 11? What are the stipulations, if any? Does that make sense? So, let me do a little bit of backstory here. So, Jeremiah is a prophet. He became a prophet during the reign of a guy named King Josiah. Now, Josiah was a good king. What had happened is, do you guys know King David, the guy that killed Goliath? Yes? Everyone with me? Okay. He had a Solomon who loved his women, okay? Too much so. Loved all his concubines, and because of that, and his, his concubines turned his heart away from following the Lord. And so there was, right after Solomon died, a split in the nation of Israel. The and you have the tribes to the north, and then you only have one tribe left, that's the tribe of Judah and the south. The north gets wiped out, and there's only the tribe of Judah that's left. And even these guys, the tribe of Judah, they're supposed to be the good guys. Jesus comes from the line of the tribe of Judah, yes? 
even the good guys, Judah, had gone off the rails. And so much so that they, they didn't even have like a copy of this, which would be Torah back then. So everyone is off the rails. They're, there's idols all over the land. And one day, King Josiah is told, oh, we found a copy of the Bible, basically. And he goes, you're joking. That's it. He p- picks it up. He actually reads it, and he goes, that's why we're in such a mess, because there's idols everywhere. All right, since I'm the king, smash the idols down. The, the land Yahweh heals, Josiah, that's, that's, a, that's what that means, is going to be healed now. It's cleansed of all of these idols. So Jeremiah the prophet becomes a prophet during that time. Pretty cool time, right? Like this is, you know, you, you know if, if you feel like your political party is sort of winning, it kind of feels good, you know, to kind of be like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm living in the good days where, you know, I'll, actually, I won't, even, I won't even give an example. But you sort of feel good about it. You know, you feel kind of like, yeah, well, Jeremiah, he comes, he comes a prophet during, like, the good old days wh- when all of this cleansing of the land is going on. But King Josiah cops it. He dies, poor guy. And what happens is Judah, the tri- you know, they're, they're the ones in the south, they won't. They won't repent. God keeps warning them. If you don't repent, I'm going to send the Babylonians. Ah, yeah, whatever. God, we know you love us. I mean, that's kind of your job description, isn't it? You just got to love us. You're obsessed with us, right? They're like Westerners. They're like Aussies in America, right? God, just lo- he's, he's crazy about us. Of course he wants to bless us. All he wants. And God says, oh, really? Okay, well, watch this. Here comes the Babylonians. Smash. Rip these people Many of them, murder many of them, take them about 1,200 kilometers away to another kingdom. Now, you have to understand, if you're the nation of Israel, do you know what the pinnacle is? Do you know what, like why they live and move and have their brain? It's the land, and specifically the temple, because that's their connection to God. And what happened? Temple, smashed, destroyed. Oh, what happened to the priests? Killed. What do we have left? We have, we, like, nothing. There's, like, the, the bottom's falling out here. So there goes, literally, men, women, and children chained like animals 1,200 kilometers away. And again, they didn't have trains back then, right? You know, walking. Many of them probably would have died on the journey. They get to Babylon. And so Jeremiah then writes a letter to the people that have been deported. And that's what this letter is in Jeremiah 29. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing stuff. So here's the deal, though. Jeremiah catches wind through the grapevine or the coconut wireless or whatever it is or the Camel Express that there's two blokes, two dodgy blokes. Let's call them Brucey and and Ned. Is that (laughs) helpful? Right? And, and what, are, what are Brucey and Ned doing? They're running around and they're saying, oh, we've got a vision from God. And the vision is, very, very soon, God is going to use another nation to come and to destroy Babylon, which in turn, what will that do for us? Well, when Babylon gets sacked, we can run out of here and come back to Jerusalem. Now, let's be honest. If you have been ripped out of your, you've lost your job, your family's been killed, if two guys are running around, Brucey and Ned, 
and they're telling you this, and they're saying, this is the word of the Lord, you'd go, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> that's actually sounds, that's actually the exact, like, let's hire these guys as our pastors, right? They, they, this is exactly what I've been wanting to hear. And Jeremiah says, yeah, no. That, that's, that's not what God has planned. At all, actually. It, there's, this is not going to be a quick layover, guys. Listen, don't listen to those two guys. They're lying. In fact, this is not just going to be, a, you know, a couple months and you come back. Buckle down. It's going to be 70 years in this place. That's what Jeremiah is communicating. So he sends this letter. And first, he, what does he want them to do? He wants them, do you know, he wants them to embrace the providence of God. It was the sovereign Lord who exiled them. This will help your theology, if you're listening. But, but seriously, verse 4, remember the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, right? He comes, rips them out of Jerusalem, but God says, I sent you. I exiled you. Verse 4, you see it? Whom I have sent into exile. God are you, are you, wait, are you, are you tracking with me here? Like He says, verse 4, notice, Thus says the Lord, a God of hosts of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem. Wait, 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 hold on. I thought it was Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. Yes, it was. But God rose up Nebuchadnezzar as an agent of abduction for this purpose. So for now, they're to trust God. And in that context, they are to trust him by fulfilling the creation mandate and to seek peace, to seek shalom for actually Babylon itself. So that's Jeremiah's first aim. What is his second aim? His second aim is in dispatching this letter was to give them hope in God's covenantal promises. Let, let, me, let me look up here on the screen. I'll, I'll give you an overview of Jeremiah 29 here. Because in verses 10 through 14, he addresses, he, there's several groups here. The captives in Babylon, that's in verse 10 through 14. Then in verses 15 through 19, it's those who would soon join them, okay? And then in verse 20 through 23, the false prophets in Babylon, that's Bruce and Ned. And then finally, the false prophet Shemaiah. So what I want to do this morning is actually focus, I want us to concentrate on verses 10 through 14, particularly the content and application of the letter sent to those who were confined in Babylon, because there's three commands, if, if you're looking there in your, in your Bible, three commands for these exiles that we can pick up from the text. In verses 4 through 6, they are told to settle in and fulfill the creation mandate. Then in verses 4 through 7, this is not coming up on the screen if you're looking up here. I know it's a beautiful PowerPoint. In verses four, uh, 7 through 9, they are ordered to seek peace or shalom for Babylon. And then finally, in verses 10 through 11, they are called to hope in God's covenantal promises. So if you missed that, we'll unpack it slowly here. The first one is fulfilling the, what do I mean by, what do I mean by the creation mandate? What do I, well, let's look at the Jenner family. We got a lot of kids, okay? So no, but like, look here in verse four. Look what he says. He says, thus says the Lord, God of hosts of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem. Notice, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. 
the Lord's first word through Jeremiah was probably a bit shocking. He doesn't say, look, I know this stinks. I know you've coughed it big time. But just hang in there because in just a couple of months, you know what? Just a short while, I'll tear down Babylon and bring you home. Is that what he says? No. Now there's four verbs commanded. Can you see it? Build, live, plant, and eat. This was their duty for their 70-year duration in Babylon. It was not going to be a quick layover. He was calling them to be patient and take up residency. He then tells them to marry and produce children. You see that in verse 6, right? Multiply there and do not decrease. The language that sounds similar to the creation mandate. What does God tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. And cultivate the garden, right? The plants. Now, if that caught them off guard, which I reckon it would have, verse 7 will shock them. Verse 7 is so counterintuitive. Look what it says in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What? Not only were they to settle into a pagan city, but they were to seek peace for it. Think how counterintuitive this would have been, honestly. For, for Israelites to seek the welfare of any pagan city, especially one that had just destroyed their whole livelihood. I mean, many of their family members would have been murdered right before their eyes. If you or I were them, and that happened to us, and we're in Babylon, naturally we'd fall prey to this idea of like, oh yeah, sh sh two months, three months, six months, yeah, well, when are we going home? 70 years? Hold on a tick. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's one thing to settle down in this pagan city, but we're to, maybe for a season, but we're to pray for the city? We're to seek the Lord on its behalf? Are you joking? No. No, no. In fact, the exiles, those that are in Babylon, their own welfare was contingent upon the amount of welfare that pervaded the city. Did you catch that? In other words, essentially, when Babylon prospered, with the peace of God, the exiles would prosper as well. One commentator writes this, he says, the imperative bestows upon this vulnerable, small community a large missional responsibility. In this way, the community is invited into the larger public process of the empire. Uh, such a horizon prevents the exilic community from withdrawing to its, into its own safe sectarian existence and gives it work to do and responsibility for the larger community. Okay, so maybe some people at this point would have got it, and they said, oh, okay, I, I get it, I get it. We're, we're the Lord was calling us to, he's calling us to serve and to love our new place of residence. All right, but how long is that going to be? What are we talking here? A couple months, a couple years? I mean, is there any hope, by the way, that we're eventually going to return back to the motherland, back to Jerusalem? Is there any hope for that? Well, verse 10 answers. 
that question. Notice, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. What place? Remember, where, where did Jeremiah dispatch the letter from? Jerusalem, right? So he repeats, what is he, Jeremiah repeats what he's already said back in chapter 25. When the punishment had run its course, God would bring them back. In fact, let me, um, let me show you kind of a neat connection. Just, just hold a little bookmark in your Bible here. Uh, just, you know, I don't know, put your notes or something. And go to the right in your Bible to the book of Ezra. Not Ezra. Ezra's over there. Ezra. The book of Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. This is, if you reach, um, it's just, it's right after 2 Chronicles. It's no, no problem if you want to look at your table of contents. If you get to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, you've gone too far. Ezra 1.1. 1, 1. That's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, gone way too far. So Ezra 1.1. 1, 1. Remember, there's this promise that God bring them back to this place, right? Back to Jerusalem. And then look what happens. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord, by the mouth of who? Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has cha charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Do you see the connection? Back in Jeremiah 29.10, the Lord comforts his people by assuring them that he will indeed bring them home. After 70 years, he would stir up the heart of a pagan king to accomplish a new exodus and provide, not only that, but provide the funds for a temple reconstruction. You see, the duration in Babylon was not pointless. It was not random. It was not just accidental it forced the people to their knees to plead with God to remain faithful for his steadfast love for them. Okay, now, with all of that said, hopefully you kept the bookmark there, we can just flip right back to Jeremiah 29. Now comes verse 11. Let's pick up in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, which we just saw in Ezra, right? Boom, it happens. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Okay, with everything we've looked at so far, one can plainly see, hopefully, that the you in Jeremiah 29, 11 cannot be uprooted from its original location and applied to every single individual person living in the 21st century. Certainly, this passage had a particular people in mind that lived in a specific era in history. Also, this is helpful, hopefully, the passage is plural in nature and not singular. God is speaking to corporate Israel, 
not to individuals. In, in the American South, when there's a second person plural, they say, y'all, right? Y'all. I've heard some Aussies say, Y-O-U-S-E, like use guys, for a second person plural. Usually gives away your bogan card when you say that, all right? But what do you, what, what, why, do you, why do you say use, or why, or why do you, um, or if it's the American Northeast, I think it's you guys, or, or whatever, or if it's, if it's the American South, it's y'all, because you're trying to communicate, it's not just this person, it's a group. And, and so here's the point. When a group is addressed in Scripture, as there is here, it's helpful to ask, who's the group? Who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to the nation of Israel. Here's the problem, though. Far too often, this verse, people take it and bury it into their heart as a personal promise for their individual life. Sadly, many churches advocate that this verse essentially implies, hey, guys, look, God can't wait to bless your life. In fact, God can't wait to bless you with a pain-free life with a perfect job or your dream spouse or the house you've always wanted. Just believe the promises and you will have the life you've always wanted. You will have your best life now. Listen, that's a lie. And the devastating reality, here's the deal, and I've seen this. I have seen this again and again and again. The devastating reality is for people who buy into that, years down the road, what happens? They are disappointed. They're upset with God because <laughs> their spouse gets cancer. Because they run into financial hardship. Because they run into marital problems. Their, health, their own personal health breaks down. Where's God? What about this blessing of my life that he's promised me? See, the truth is, friend, if you read the whole book of Jeremiah, it's more about God disrupting his people's plans and overturning his people's dreams. And beyond the danger of individualizing a corporate text, I mean, honestly, just stop and think about this. Think about the people that heard Jeremiah 29, 11 read out, remember, letter sent to them. 70 years is a long, long time. Most of, in this, most of us in this room will be dead by then, right? That, that's not like, do you think that gives, when they first heard that, they're like, oh, I, yes, uh, man, put that on the wall, baby. Woo! That's going to be my life verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. 70 years, are you joking? I don't get to go back and have connection with God, my creator. I don't get to get back to the land. There's no high priest. I, I'm in this dodgy place called Babylon. Do you think that, that, that uh, they use that as some kind of economic sort of like proof text? I've lost everything. Why, why would I hold to that promise? That's exact, exactly what I, it's actually the opposite of what I want to hear. I want to hear Ned and Brucey. Isn't that ironic, though, that prosperity churches do exactly that? They reverse this whole thing. And let's just even say this. How about the guy who wrote Jeremiah 29, 11? The prophet Jeremiah. Did he have his own private jet that he flew around and preached at big conferences and collect money from people? No. I mean, he didn't even want to be a prophet. His message wasn't believed. 
He was mocked by those in power. He, he was charged with disturbing the peace. And so was, he was actually beaten for it and put in the equivalent or ancient version of a straitjacket. And as he faithfully delivered to the people the message God gave him, like the one we're looking at today, he was charged with treason. To add to this, God prohibited Jeremiah to marry or have children to symbolize the barrenness of a land under judgment. God also banned Jeremiah to pray for the people. So that's the guy who wrote Jeremiah 29, 11. And we have to remember that after the fall in Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the original recipients of Jeremiah's letter were real people that lived in a real time who were facing some real questions. What is going on? I thought we were the apple of God's eyes, Scripture says. I thought we were a God's, I thought we're a nation of Israel, right? We're God's covenant people. What's happening? Why is this going on, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah had to give them the true but difficult message. And you know what it is? You broke the covenant. You broke the covenant. But nevertheless, just as Jeremiah told them, following 70 years of captivity, Israel will re-enter the land. And we know the story, or maybe some of us don't. When they finally, those 70 years, remember we just read about it, when they finally re-enter the land, oh man, it's happy days. Woo! It's their best life now. I'll tell you, it's amazing. No, what happened? They go back, they rebuild, they try to rebuild. This is hence the book of Nehemiah, right? They try to rebuild the wall, and it's lame. It's a weak sauce rendition, so much so that the old men who could remember what the temple looked like in its glories, they saw and wept. And by the way, is there any king on the throne for Israel anymore? Remember, remember the promise? Hopefully, if you read Isaiah, the, what's everyone waiting for? They're waiting for this true Davidic king to come, right? And where is he? Nowhere. Where's our king? Where's this? That's the temple? What a joke. And how are the people? Are they saying, man, we've learned our lesson. Man, we copped it for 70 years. Nope, they go right back into idolatry. Oh, this is great. What about those plans that God was going to prosper us and bless us and all these things? Where, what is going on? You can imagine how jaded some people would be, right? Which means, which means, listen, Jeremiah 29 ultimately pushes beyond itself. If the problem is the heart, right? Because they can't, well, okay, why, what's the problem? What's all this stuff? All the bad stuff happening, it's they're not worshiping God. They're not fulfilling the covenant, right? You broke the covenant. Heart, guess what Jeremiah promises them just two chapters later? That one day, God will make or he will cut a new covenant. Well, they'll know him from the heart. Look, look just turn two pages over. You can see it for, with your own eyes. Look what he says. He says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Jeremiah, thir sorry, Jeremiah 31. Chapter 31, verse 31. Remember, he's promised, so like, just two chapters describe this, it's this new covenant. If the people were incapable of seeking the Lord with their heart, then something needed to be done, right? Which for forces Jeremiah 29, 11 to the point four to a new covenant. And that's why he says this, behold, 31, 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, remember? You broke the covenant. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's massive. Now, some of you, though, are like, that's really cool for Israel, but wait a minute. It says here, house of Judah, house of Israel. I mean, that ain't me. So how does this verse apply to me then? Well, in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, the author actually just, imagine this, the passage you just read, takes this whole text of Jeremiah 31 and then slaps it in his book and he applies it to the church. So according to the inspired author of Hebrews, these promises of the new covenant apply to you and to me. And listen, when an old testament author sorry when a new testament author quotes the old testament he's right i had to pay thousands of dollars to learn that i'll never forget my old testament professor saying that still stuck with me he says he, he will look at the book of hebrews and he says when a new testament author quotes from the old testament he's right he's right so does Jeremiah 29, 11 apply to you? Well, as you can see, it must be read in the context of the whole book of Jeremiah. And the book must be read in the sweep of Israel's story. And all of Jeremiah and Israel's history must be seen in the big picture of God's redemptive and saving purposes found ultimately in Jesus Christ. For all the promises of God are yes and amen in Him, in Christ. So if you have turned from your sin, friend, if you're here this morning, and embraced Jesus alone for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life, if the Lord has saved you, then your ultimate end, when you breathe your last breath on this earth, it will not be as a victim, but as a victor, a joint heir with the king, because of Jesus' work on your behalf. There is a future and a hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, I wonder what hope you have. Well, do you reckon God will just turn a blind eye for all the ways that you disobeyed him? Do you think that you'll go to heaven because you've been a good person? What will you do? What will you do in the end? What future, what hope do you have? Now, in closing, let me say this. What are the real promises of Jeremiah 29, 11? Like, if, if, if you walk out here and you're kind of like, okay, I heard a lot of kind of stuff, that some things I wasn't familiar with, some things I, I was, okay, where, how, where do I sort of hang my hat here? God is faithful to keep his promises to his people then and now. All the promises of God are, have found their fulfillment in Christ. You see, friends, these promises, these people in Babylon, they had to live by faith, right? For 70 years. 70 years is a long time in captivity, but they had to trust in the promises of God. 
By faith, they were called to build houses, plant gardens, raise families, and pray for the peace of the city, even if that didn't seem to add up in their minds. And maybe you feel that way now. You're not sure what God is up to with the kind of week that you've had. Perhaps you're one tempted to wonder if God has any plans for your life, or maybe he's abandoned you. God has a plan for you in Christ. That plan is not for your destruction, but for your well-being in him. The Bible tells us that since we are in Christ, we're actually a new creation. It also says, he also uses this language that we are strangers and exiles in this time between Jesus' first coming and his last coming or his next return. You hear that? We are exiles, actually. So in this time between Jesus' first coming and his next coming, we suffer, we bleed, we die physically. And as a result, we might be tempted to think that God's abandoned us. But take heart, friend. The Lord has a plan for you. You are being conformed to the image of Christ by sharing his suffering. Romans 8, God works for the good for all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Your suffering is not random. It's God-ordained. Unless God sort of hands off here and we're a bunch of deists who believe that God made the world like a clock, kind of said, oh, that looks should be all right, and just walked away. Your suffering, your temptation is God-ordained. All of it. God is sovereign over all things. Or, or he's not. Or he's just, he's just kind of crying in heaven. He wishes he could help you, but he can't. Is that the God you want to serve? Is the God you believe? I'm not. Rip up the book, man. I'm out of here. I, I believe Romans 8, God works for the for all the all things. We're going to look closer at that passage. Again, Jeremiah 29, 11 is not a standalone text, but it's wrapped up within a context that carries massive implications of God's faithfulness to his people. But my concern, though, is this. I think, for some of you, you have heard the passage today, and then someone's going to message you, Jeremiah 29, 11, or you're going to see it on a fridge or someone's t-shirt and kind of go idiot or 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 whatever or you'll just kind of scoff in your heart or whatever is that is that what we should be doing no and even if someone does this and this happens to me i don't, I don't do this but i'm not you know let me, let me share my perfect example but people do you know because i'm a pastor how many out of context verses people throw at me to encourage me all the time like some, some of you in this church. <laughs> I love you guys. Okay? I won't name names. But like, what do I do? You idiot. And hit them on the head? No, hopefully I haven't done that. But I, I say, well, you know what's amazing? Listen, gospel segue. The future and hope is ultimately rooted in Jesus, isn't it? And because of Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in him. What a future. What a hope. You see, so... Rather than hear the verse and go, oh, that's not what it says, and go tit for tat for someone, particularly in a subjective postmodern culture where that person's truth is solid and you can't even argue with them because it's what it means to them, don't waste your time with that. Just segue to the gospel and say this, because this, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So I, I really pray that, that we have humble, grateful hearts that we can see Jeremiah 29, 11 is, is much greater than just our own personal comforts and ease and, and 
how nice holidays in this world. But it's pointing forward to the new covenant. It's pointing forward to Christ. Because here's the deal. This week, your plans may evaporate. Your dreams may be crushed. Your life may be snuffed out. But the God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you up with him in the end. And that is all that matters, friends. God has a plan, and it's rooted in Christ. Do you know him? Are you trusting in him? If, you're, if you are this morning, I'd encourage you, in just a moment, we're going to celebrate that reality, that Christ's body was broken for you, his blood shed on the cross for you. If, if you're here and you're identifying with that, that I encourage you, we're going to pass out the communion cups and the little bits. Go ahead and take all those off. We'll hold them together as a church, and we'll take them corporately as a whole church body. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't just take them because you kind of feel bad or don't want to be left out. Do this because you are anchored in Christ. And so allow those items to look, just go, you know, just look past or go past as they, as they um, pass them out. So let's, let's actually, for those that are in Christ, though, let's, let's focus now and, and thank God for his work on our behalf.